And the second reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that is on page 1024. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Today we're looking at uh, being a church officer. Now you could say, hey, Wayne's going to preach to himself this morning. We'll all just listen and we'll critique him later. Well, uh, if you're in any leadership role in the church, uh, no matter what sort of leader it is, uh, yes, if you're on staff, but yes, if you're leading a, a ministry, yes, if you're leading a small group, uh, yes, if you're a warden, it applies to you. And in fact, all the others can think, okay, well, that's good, I'm none of those, so I can sit back and relax here and point the finger later. Well, sorry, it points to, comes back to you too, because all the qualities here are what it means to be godly. And godliness is something that every person who follows Jesus is told to aspire to, to work towards. We're going to learn uh, later on next week about training ourselves to be godly. It's important. And godly means godlike, following the example of Jesus Christ uh, living in this world particularly. Back to leaders. So this sermon applies to everyone, so we can just uh, remember that. And the qualities mentioned are going to reply to everyone. But let's look particularly at leaders. Uh, sometimes when we talk about leaders, people think of authority and structure and cringe a bit, think, oh, leaders, you know, because we've got many examples of bad leaders, haven't we? We can all see them and point to them. And sometimes leaders can be more of a nuisance than a help. And sometimes the Anglican church can be, because it's a structured church, can be accused of being um, too structured. And the argument goes, or can go, that we need to be spirit-led, we need to have um, less structure and more people being able to do as they feel led by the spirit. Well, as we unpack this, let's have a look at the quality of God. What do we see in God? Do we see a person who's structured in God? Uh, does the Bible teach us or show us that God is structured in how he works things out? In the Garden of Eden, was he caught out that Adam and Eve sinned? No. 
What did he say in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they say? What did he say to Adam about the the uh, the serpent will bite you on your heel and you'll crush the serpent's head? Uh, Gen- Gen- sorry, Genesis chapter three verse fifteen. That was a reference people we now know is to Jesus. We didn't know at that time, but it's clear it was referring to Jesus. So God already had planned when Adam and Eve sinned how he's going to fix it up in Jesus. And we see that was 2,000 years before. Uh, sorry, 4,000 years before. Then we see 1,000 years before the time of King David uh, in Psalm 22 describing Jesus' death exactly. The crucifixion, even the dividing up of his clothes and the wound in his side, describing the death of Jesus a thousand years before it happened. There's just there's hundreds of references in the Old Testament showing God had a plan. It was well in place way back a long time ago. It wasn't a plan that had to suddenly get developed when things went wrong. God is a structured God. And so how do we then go as people who are led by the Spirit of God? Well, if you're led by the Spirit, it means you're a structured person. A God has a plan. And you're fitting in with that plan. And so we need to have a look at, well, what are leaders in? Look at, look at the example of Moses in Exodus 3. And Moses was a reluctant leader. He was chosen by God. He, we, he didn't, he's had a speech impediment. We think it might have been stuttering. Uh, he said to God, look, I can't publicly speak. Uh, and so God said, well, let Aaron, your brother, do the public speaking. But you're still my leader. And Moses was a really reluctant leader. Um, He felt inadequate, completely inadequate, but he had to rely on God. He relied on God so much that when he came in front of Pharaoh, the king of the whole world, and told Pharaoh he had to release all his slave, all his manpower, all his employees to make his industry work, he had to release them and let's send them back to uh, Palestine, um, which was, you know, joke who's this guy telling me what to do i'm the most powerful man in the world but moses had the courage and strength to do that why because he's confident himself no because he could speak well no because his qualifications no because he knew god he relied on god and so the quality of a leader is, keeps coming out in the Bible as someone who is going to rely on God. It doesn't matter uh, what sort of uh, background that person has, like Paul was a ratbag and he became a major leader. It doesn't matter their academic qualifications, like Moses, a very unskilled sort of guy with trouble speaking or whatever. It doesn't matter who you are. The main quality of a leader is that they are godly. They rely on God. They want to be like God. So let's have a look at this as we try and unpack what it's saying and how it might apply to us. And as we go through these qualities, yes, he's talking about leaders. And if you're a leader, you've really got to pick these up. But it's talking about every person who follows Jesus. And that's all of us. First of all, uh, qualities of a leader. There's two sorts of leaders mentioned. There's the overseer, which is like a bishop, and there's a deacons. Um, And the overseer is a man. The deacon can be men or women. It's not really clear in this, but in verse 11, where it says in some translation says their wives, some translation says women, um, it, the word can either be wives or women. That's the problem. But the, the fact is there's no definite article, so it can't be there. It can be a wife or a woman, but not their wife or their woman. It cannot be there. There's no definite article in the Greek. Uh, so it's referring to deacons and then it's referring to women. And what's interesting is, uh, some people think, uh, well, it's t- talking about the wives of deacons. But 
if this is the case, why isn't the wife of a bishop mentioned? Because it says he's the husband of one wife. So why isn't the qualities applied to a bishop? Surely a bishop's wife is more important than a deacon's wife. Surely the qualities for her should be put in the Bible. But they're not. So even just the way it flows out, it's every belief to reason that this is the qualities of a, of a deacon, a woman deacon. And that's substantiated when you go to Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Phoebe was a woman, woman deacon at this time. And Paul writes about her there. So we know there's women deacons, but we don't know of any male bishops. Uh, sorry, male bishops, that's right. <laughs> Female bishops, you know what I mean? No women bishops, sorry there. So that's how we're looking at today. We're looking at men for the bishops and men and women for deacon positions as we unpack this. And sometimes when you get that um, unclear in this passage, you have to go to other parts of the Bible to see how it um, makes sense, illuminates, clarifies what we're looking at, which Romans chapter 16, 1 does. Okay, it says, a trustworthy saying, anyone who sets his heart on being an overseer or bishop desires a noble task. Uh, this trustworthy saying, there's five of those mentioned in uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Uh, they're key statements that Paul's mentioning. There's something that can be relied on. It's actually highlighting what follows, where it says... Um, Anyone who sets his heart on being an oversight desires a noble task. Setting your heart on being something. It's not just talking about emotions. It's not talking, hey, I want this, you know, I want to be this because it looks good. It's not just talking about emotions. It's talking about your mind of knowing what that is, knowing what a bishop overseer does, which is going to be spelled out in a minute, knowing that and then wanting to be that because it's a call of God. It's something that's going to stand with you when life is really hard and difficult being an overseer. When you feel like giving up, you know you're not there just because it looked good, but because you feel a call of God to that role. And you're going to continue to rely on God and rely upon him even more. And as Paul says in Philippians 4.13, when he's weak, he's strong. He realizes in all things he can do things with Christ. That idea of just continuing to be strong in Jesus, relying on Jesus. That call of God is such an important thing. It's a noble task because you're going to be caring for and nurturing the people of God and that is a privilege to do so, nurturing God's family. So that person must be, in verse 2, must be above reproach. I cannot uh, mean faultless because no person could be this role if they were faultless. Uh, anyone who follows Adam is going to have sin in their life but it means a blameless reputation. In his observable conduct, uh, so it's really talking about public reputation here, uh, that's the person we're looking for, a person who is blameless in their public reputation. Husband of but one wife, um, it's not talking about um, uh, if you're single, you can still be this role because Paul was single, but it's talking about faithfulness in marriage because in that time uh, we're in um, He's writing to Ephesus, that's in modern-day Turkey. Uh, there's uh, Muslim people there with multiple marriages and the idea of even multiple marriages was back in the time of David and Solomon and so he's saying you don't do that. You have just one wife, you need to be faithful in your marriage. Uh, we know that Jesus said in Matthew 5.31, uh, divorced people can remarry if uh, they're permitted to if it involves um, if they're the innocent party and involving sexual misconduct by the other. So he's encouraging people, he's actually relying on people to set a model for marriage if you're a leader. 
and someone who uh, takes marriage seriously is going to exclude anyone who's been guilty of unfaithfulness in marriage. The person needs to be temperate, a self-mastery, that outward expression of being in self-control. And this idea of temperate then flows onto what's mentioned next, uh, being hospitable. Because hospitality was uh, very important this time. Uh, There were no um, motels, there were no hotels. Uh, You might find some little shady inns, uh, but they're pretty dodgy places. They were dirty, they were unclean and often unsafe to stay in. So visiting Christian leaders, preachers, evangelists would need to be accommodated. They would need somewhere to stay. And hospitality was very much an important part of the early church. The person needed to be able to teach And this is the first um, moral quality. It's a single professional quality that's mentioned here. Able to teach. Um, Amongst all the moral qualities he's talking about, he brings this qualification in. Because pastors are always going to be teachers. Teachers of the word of God. Teachers to grow people in their knowledge and understanding and response to the Bible. Verse 3. Not given to drunkenness. Um, Drinking of alcohol was permitted, but not to be drunk and not to be controlled by alcohol. Because alcohol is a depressant, it can blur our faculty of judgment, it requires to have, we need to have self-mastery over it. And it's interesting that uh, the teaching of alcohol follows straight after the teaching uh, uh, teaching about alcohol, or list of alcohol, sorry, the list where alcohol is mentioned follows straight after teaching. Because teaching and alcohol don't go together. If you're teaching, you've got blurred vision, blurred understanding. You're trying to tell other people what to do. Uh, You're not in a good place to be a teacher. So teaching and alcohol don't go together. Then he talks about temperament and temper. Not a violent person, but gentle, not quarrelsome. The false teachers in chapter 6 are told, we're told they're, they're conceited, they're quarrelsome, they're strife. There's lots of problems amongst them. In fact, Christian leader needs to be gentle because gentleness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 verse 23 and should especially be seen in Christian leaders who are servants of our Lord. Gentleness. Not a lover of money. Chapter 6 verse 10 tells us that money is the root of all kinds of evil. In our day we see how sadly some evangelists can uh, be um, not playing for souls but playing for money and getting quite wealthy as a result of that. Um, that's not right at all. In fact, Paul requires pastors to be paid, chapter 5, verse 17 and following. Uh, their salaries in, in most countries, uh, the salaries of pastors are kept too low in comparison with other professions. So if you're a professional person and you come to be a church minister, you're going to take a big pay cut for the rest of your life. And that means you're not going to be tempted to become a minister for financial reasons. To make money out of it, because you're not. You can make more money in private enterprise than you can the church. It's not a reason to keep ministers poor, though. (laughs) I'm doing all right. That's okay. Um, I often think, though, you know, I do my police friends, and I often think, you know, where would I be in the police force now? And I hear some of them retiring, and I think, oh, gee, if I was in the police, I'd be there with that money and there with their time. But no, it's worth serving the Lord. So you don't do it for money. That's not what's fair. There's more important things in life than money, isn't there? I'm reminded that when I come to funerals and people pass away, that some people are quite wealthy, they've got a lot of stuff, but you can't take money with you. It means nothing. And in fact, relationships with people and friendships are much more important than money, and you see that at funerals, but most of all, a relationship with God is most important. 
Verse 5, manage their own family well, his children obey him with proper respect. The leadership of a household is a training ground for leading God's church, God's family. And not to be a recent convert, verse 6, or he may become conceited and fall on the same judgment as the devil. There needs to be a genuine conversion seen in the person, um, deep roots and growing as a Christian. Um, otherwise, you can become proud of your position and be there for the wrong reason. Humility is an essential, necessary part of being a leader. Humility before God is a life of devotion, of faith and obedience. As we saw in Joshua, as we saw in Moses, people who are humble before God are going to rely upon God, not, not thinking, I'm a leader because I'm good, I'm, I'm whatever, but a leader because God's put them there and they rely on. And verse 7, must have a good reputation with outsiders and non-Christian public or he'll fall into, so he'll not fall into disgrace, the devil's trap. The world's watching. And they're watching the behaviour uh, of the leaders and the leaders need to win their respect to be above reproach in verse 2. In fact, the leaders should remember they serve with an audience of one, one that matters God, God watching over everything they say, think and do and be serious and careful about pleasing God. So that's the bishop, that's the overseer, but that's all of us too. Let's go on and talk about deacons. They're men and women, and uh, we're going to break it up into four areas, what's said about them. Um, first of all, deacons need to have self-mastery. In verse 8, they need to be worthy of respect and above reproach in verse 11. You'll see some similarities between when it talks about the men in verses 8 and following and the women in verse 11. There's some similarities because they're talking about the same role. Self-mastery, worthy of respect, sincere, uh, verse 8, not malicious talkers in verse 11. Uh, 8, not indulging in too much wine, verse 11, being temperate. And 8, not pursuing dishonest gain, lovers of money, in verse 11, trustworthy in everything. So self-mastery, self-control. Convictions. Uh, verse 9, they must hold the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. Be committed to that. Rely on that. That's what they're expected to teach. And the conscience is important because back in chapter 1, verse 19, we had people who rejected their conscience and were shipwrecked their faith. A good conscience is important, chapter 1, verse 5. Self-mastery, conviction. The third thing is they need to be tested and approved. Uh, verse 10 must be first tested. If nothing's against them, then they can serve. And the fourth thing is irreproachable home life. Husband of one wife, manage children and household well, and if they serve well, they gain an excellent standing and great assurance of faith in Christ Jesus. Four things, self-mastery, conviction, tested and approved, irreproachable home life. They all apply to us too, don't they? There's none of those that we can say, hey, I don't need that. We all need them. And we, it'd be really good to go back over this passage and just sort of say, hang on, you know, which ones do I need to do a bit more growing in? Which ones am I most struggling with right now? Maybe I need to think about that. And please come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that if you wanted to grow in any of those areas. We're all called to grow in godliness. And this is giving us lots of places that we can do that. So in summary, if you look at your um, newsletter, sorry, no, if you look at your summary sheet, you'll see in the back 
there's five points. And they're going to summarise all five of what's been said so far in the different categories. Because the qualifications for, for bishop and deacon are very similar. And let's put them together. First of all, number one, the, the person who does this need to be self-controlled and mature. That includes in areas of drink, of money, of temper, of tongue. They need to be self-controlled and mature. Number two, in regards to family, both faithful to the wife and able to disciple their children. Number three, relationships. Be hospitable and gentle in relationships. Number four, towards outsiders, highly esteemed. And number five, in regards to faith, strong in their hold of the truth of faith and gifted in teaching it. You see, this is to encourage the right sort of people to, to respond to being leaders, pastoral leaderships. It's to encourage the right ones and discourage the wrong ones because it'll discourage those who see the standards as too high and the task too arduous and there's no real kudos here and it's going to be a real struggle and I don't want to do this because it's going to feel good because it's not going to feel good. That'll discourage them. But those who are encouraged are going to see, hang on, this is the responsibility for caring for God's people. This is important. This is, this is something, yes, I want to see this happen. It's a noble task. It's a really important task, a breathtaking, beautiful task of caring for God's family and of giving yourself in service to them. It encourages servant leadership like we see in the person of Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage you to go away and look at those qualities. Yeah, okay, have, think about me. Pray, pray for me. Pray for all our leaders with those qualities. Definitely pray. Don't bother coming to talk to me about them if I fail any, because I can tell you I fail in all of them pretty well. I'm not perfect. No one is. I'm a work in progress. But aren't we all? Aren't we all a work in progress? And this is an encouraging thing because um, these qualities, I mean, how would they go in other places like parliament and business and, and in the world, these qualities, if you said our leader, your leaders had to be like that, cross that one, cross that one, cross that one, cross that one, you'd hardly find people, would you? I mean, this is setting the bar high for a good reason. This is not leading a business, this is not leading in parliament or wherever else, this is leading the family of God. This involves ministry in the family of God. If not leading it, it involves all sorts of ministry. And this also involves the people who are in the family of God, just the normal members who aren't in leadership roles. It's important to take these on board because this is what God wants from us. So let's be praying. We're going to look next week about striving to grow and training ourselves in godliness, which will pick this up and take it forward as we go forward in Timothy. Let's pray. Thanks, God, for this passage. It's got challenges for all of us if we think of ourselves as a leader. But help us to think of ourselves as a person who needs to be godly and to take on board these qualities and to grow in them, that we might be, we might be men and women who serve and please you in whatever capacity. And it might be done to your honour and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.